0: Before we get to the show, I want to let you know about a live event we're doing in New York. This is Taste is coming at you live again on August 17th with two very special guests, authors Natasha Pikowitz and Claire Saffitz, in conversation with me, Eliza Barbanel. We'll be at Rizzoli Bookstore talking about summer baking, making their latest dessert-centric cookbooks, and more. And it's free to attend. So see you there. First come, first serve.
1: The whole bizarre foods things of like, I'm going to go eat the grossest thing I can find. But it's like, it's not gross to a a very large group of people. So uh, we always like to approach just a new food or just food in general with like a pretty open mind.
0: This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Ham El-Whaley is a chef, recipe developer, and video creator based in New York City. You may know him from the New York Times Cooking Channel, where he shares ingenious tips and whips up opulent feasts from niche ingredients alongside his wife, Sola. But you probably don't know Ham's rich history in food. From growing up in Doha, Qatar, to Bolivian Egyptian parents in the food business, to running R&D at and Momofuku Ondo. Today we dig into it all, plus his love of live music and graphic teas, and I hope you'll enjoy. Hi, Ham. This is Taste. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hi, Eliza. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: That was like the most formal hello we've ever done to each it, other. Re- probably. <laughs> <laughs> we
1: we've already said hello downstairs, so we we this is like the the podcast hello, the official hello.
0: The official hello and the official first question. I guess I'm curious. What have you eaten today? What's been good?
1: Oh, okay. So I'm, not a big, I'm not a big breakfast person, so I usually have a smoothie or like a protein shake or something in the morning kind of to get my stomach going. Because if I have something too substantial, I just feel a little nauseous. So I had protein shake with some chia seeds in there in the morning, um, and then I got some tacos for lunch. There's a Takambi that opened in my neighborhood recently, and I've been wanting to check it out. So I just popped out really quick. I grabbed some Suadero tacos, which, are, which were really good. Wow. Highly recommend. And they're pretty tough to find in New York. They're not nearly as good as uh, Taqueria Ramirez's, though. They're, I was going to say. Like, they're like top-tier, next-level tacos. But it's like if I don't feel like going all the way to Greenpoint, it's like it'll do.
0: It's good to know because I feel like Takambi is something that when I first moved to New York, I went to, as a lot of people do when they first moved to New York. And then it's been a minute since I've gone. But sometimes, you know, they're all over the city. I feel like they're mm-hmm. kind of it's a good taco option. So it's good to know that the Sweatero was was doing it for you.
1: Yeah, it's like it's it won't be the best taco in town, but it's definitely not the war. It's, it, it's like a means to an end. It'll it'll get you your it'll it'll like satisfy your taco fix. Their pastor isn't bad as well.
0: Okay, good to know. Hot tip.
1: If you're if you're in the East Village.
0: Uh, I feel like Yellow Rose is your go to spot, though.
1: It is, but it's they're different. So tacos are like it's a broad category. So if I'm feeling Tex-Mex flour tortillas, then Yellow Rose is unbeatable. I feel like there's no one doing it better than them in the city. But there's a lot of like there are a lot of options for for Mexican tacos right now.
0: Yeah, um, we're lucky.
1: Yeah, we're lucky. It's, we'll take it. Yeah, when we when we first moved here, like fifteen years-ish ago, it was pretty bleak.
0: And you were moving here from Los Angeles, right? Yes. yes. So you were going from like cornucopia of tacos to maybe less options. Yeah,
1: and so I ended up working at Empeyón. That was my first job here in New York to to you know make my own tacos. <laughs> yeah.
0: What was um What kind of tacos were you making at Empeyón?
1: So it was um. All, all kinds. So yeah. it doesn't it really really it doesn't focus on regions, it's kind of like Mexico as a whole. So we did barbacoa tacos, we did Baja style fish tacos, we did like carne asada tacos. Like there were so it was a great way to kind of learn about Mexican cuisine as a whole because I've never cooked it professionally before, but I learned a lot. I learned about salsas, I learned about the different regions, I learned about adobo, learned about Like cochinita pibil, or I learned a lot like proper guac technique. People think like you just throw avocados in a bowl, mash it up, and then no, there's like proper avocado technique. You wanna fold it, you wanna fold your mix ins into your avocado like as gently as you're folding in the egg whites into a souffle. Because I like to – you want to be able to identify all of your mix-ins in the guac. Like you want to see that cilantro peeking out. You want to see that onion peeking out. You don't want it just to be mush because I feel like there's a fine line between like perfect chunky guac and just like borderline baby food.
0: Yeah, I love that. Is this also where you learned the technique of um, pushing avocado halves through like a mesh – try. What is it oh, called?
1: Um, yeah, a wire rack.
0: A wire rack. Is that where it came from?
1: That is where because we, we were making like cases and cases and cases worth of avocados every single day, like right before service, because you want to make your avocado as close to serving as possible just so it stays really. I feel like once the acidity from the lime gets into that avocado flesh, it kind of it, it's not bad by any means, but it turns it into something else. Mm-hmm. You kind of want that acidity floating above the fat. So you get like, you, you get that gradients of textures as you eat it and like flavors and tastes. So you get like the fatty and the acidity and the crunch and the, and the herbaceousness. So if it just sits together for too long and it's just overmixed, it just becomes this one mass of thing that, that's not great. So yeah, so that much, it, it's a necessity when, when you're, Making that much guac, you can't really scoop it out with a spoon and then chop each avocado into little cubes. Like just splitting all the avocados, it would be like six cases, all split, and then we'd assembly line it. So someone would split open the avocados and pit them, pass it on to the next person who would – um, press it through the wire rack into a big hotel into a big hotel pan or bus tub, slide that down to the person who would gently fold in all the mix-ins. It's like, it's a process.
0: It's streamlined.
1: It's streamlined.
0: And it makes sense because you also have like an industrial like kitchen dishwasher. So you're like, this is a tip that I've seen you do on a New York Times cooking video before, and I don't have a dishwasher and I'm not making a restaurant's worth of guac. So that's not something I have tried, but there's been a lot of other ones that I have uh, picked up that I think we can get into, but maybe just to zoom back for a second, I want to talk a little bit about your background because I think that maybe it's something people don't know as much about you. Like, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up, where you were, and like what kind of food you were eating?
1: Uh, yeah. So I'm Bolivian Egyptian. My mom's Bolivian, my dad's Egyptian. They met at Howard University in DC, and then they got married and moved all the way to Qatar. Um, where I was born and raised, I don't know why they moved like that, that like bit of information in the story is all has always been left out. Even though I ask, it's like one of these like immigrant parent secrets that I will never know.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, so my dad got an opportunity, um, running a couple of supermarkets in Doha. Um, and then he grew that business into like an import export business. And then he grew that into a kind of Mongolian Grill franchise pivot in, in the yeah, like in the Middle East. there's like a bunch of bunch of waves that i am sure we'll, we'll we'll talk about later. But I ended up growing up there, and um in a, it's a very international community because um, it's Doha now is very different from Doha like forty years ago. It was still small. It was still growing. ExxonMobil wasn't ExxonMobil yet. It was Exxon and like mobile, there's like separate companies. so. I ended up going to an international school where there were local Qatari people, a lot of um, uh, Americans whose family worked at the army base in town, a lot of people who worked in the oil and natural gas industry. And then there was this whole like wave of just general people from all over the world who were just there like either being doctors or like managing random businesses or – so I like kind of fell into that group. Um, so I grew up eating Bolivian food, but through the lens of like Middle Eastern ingredients, things that you can find there, Egyptian food that my mom learned from my dad's like friends and family members. Um, my mom also really liked the Julia Child cookbook. I actually still have her copy of it. So we had, we would have like a random roast chicken dinner out of there. Um, and then I would also eat things at the homes of like friends. So I would have like shish barak from this Lebanese friend, which is one of my favorite dishes. Do you, do you, are you familiar with shish barak?
0: A little bit, but maybe tell me about it and what you love so much about it.
1: So it's it's this dumpling that's filled with meat and it's a really, really chewy dumpling and it's cooked in this yogurt sauce. It's cooked in this yogurt sauce that's topped with, like, a buttery, garlicky pine nut.
0: Mm. And, it's and it's lamb, right? It's
1: lamb. Yeah. Yeah. It's—I just love the textures. I love how that yogurt can be used as a sauce. And there's, like, some good technique there because you, when you heat up yogurt, it breaks. So by adding, like, either an egg or some cornstarch, you can stabilize it, and then you can actually cook things in it. One, one of my favorite things to cook in yogurt is, uh, is zucchini like zucchini or summer squash, mm-hmm. like you can just sear it up and poach it gently in that yogurt and top it with like a garlicky, some breadcrumbs and some garlicky butter. So, so delicious. So I really liked, liked that that technique of cooking in yogurt. And then, I mean, the dumplings pretty much just pasta. So it's like a, a ravioli cooked in yogurt sauce. What's not to love?
0: Yeah. And I think Sola maybe developed a recipe that was like a pasta inspired by shishbrook yeah. that I've made before.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That, I love that recipe. That, that was inspired by shish barak that I have made from her for her. Yeah. <laughs> so you see, you see the trickle down effect coming from all the way from from Doha.
0: Yeah. Your kitchen is like the most collaborative <laughs> kitchen in the entire world, probably.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like I grew, had pancit. I had so Filipino pancit, which is like the stir fried noodle dish. So there was there was a lot of international food that I just grew up eating, and um, I also grew up in a very large Brazilian community because my mom, uh, when she left Bolivia, she didn't go straight to the States. She went to school in Brazil for social work. So, and she ended up being a social worker in Brazil for a couple of years before she moved to the States. So she spoke Portuguese fluently. She cooks Brazilian food really, really well. And she there isn't really a Bolivian community in in Doha, there isn't really a—it's tough to find a Bolivian community anywhere. I think there's a pretty big one in, in Virginia in the States, but there's, like, it's tough to find Bolivians outside of Bolivia. Uh-huh. So she kind of—there there are a lot of Brazilians in, in Doha because they're really, really into football there, soccer here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they would hire a lot of Brazilian coaches and trainers to to move there and kind of train their team because they were the best in the world at the time. Um, some may argue that they're still the best, but that's not my debate to have. It's a different podcast. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a, whole, a whole other <laughs> podcast. Uh, so she befriended them and that's, that's where we spent, spent a lot of our weekends. They'd have, uh, churrascos, which are like Brazilian grills. So I, I would have feijoada on the weekend. I would have like grilled picanha with farofa, which is probably one of my favorite things to eat. So it's like a toasted tapioca crumb. That's really buttery and crunchy, and you just they treat it like a condiment. So you can sprinkle it on top of uh, your beans. You can sprinkle it on top of rice. You can sprinkle it on top of grilled meats. So I would sprinkle it on everything. So for me, it wasn't a condiment. My like plates, whenever I went there, would be like fifty percent farofa. <laughs> I I loved it. Um. So there was there was like a lot of different things that I grew up eating, and I didn't really think of it as international food. It was just like food to me because I I didn't really think of where it or where it came from or where anyone was it was just like these were the this was the community i grew up in this this is like all i know this is the food i grew up around so it didn't really feel foreign or strange or weird to me so I, like food always just i never really had i feel like a lot of people now put food in like these boxes like this food is from here mm-hmm. this food is from here like it, it just but it's like it's it's food It's food. It's delicious. And embrace it. Learn how to make it. Learn how to do it well. I think it's important to know where things come from. But like a lot of food evolves. Like in that's why, like when I when I think of the food I make now, I feel like a lot of people ask me, oh, what kind of food do you make? And it's like it's not I I make American food because I am an American with all these different experiences. But I use American products with techniques I may have learned elsewhere, but it's all American food.
0: Yeah. How do you feel about the term fusion food?
1: I don't like it. Why? I don't like it at all. It seems, well, fusion food makes it feel like things are forced together. That's what I think of with fusion. It's like you're taking this thing and fusing it with this other thing. Yeah. Fusing it like it kind of— act- It's a very—exactly. It's a very active word, and it. I feel like it— I don't know why, but I feel like it kind of has like a negative connotation.
0: I think it definitely has a negative connotation partially from an era of like white chefs fusing together cuisines that they like didn't necessarily belong to or like have the same kind of education and background from. You think about like the 2010s and fusion food maybe.
1: Yeah, like we're going to take like we're going to take bulgogi and top it on top, put it on top of nachos. There's like Korean-Mexican fusion and it's like it's like I don't. I don't know about that. Like, it, it's like, that's fine. It's delicious. Like you can like that. Um, Roy Choi.
0: Yeah. Roy like, that's Choi, exactly yeah, Kogi Ro- taco.
1: Roy Choi famously does that. But it's it's not fusion food. It's his food. Because right. Because he's Korean American. He grew up in California around a lot of Mexican food. It's not a it's not a fusion. It's it's Roy Choi's food. It's him. It's like it's it's this it's this thing that that make sense to him because it's a part it's an expression of the community he grew up in that's that's all it is and i feel like fusion kind of dumbs it down
0: yeah i appreciate that so you grew up this like very well-fed curious kid when did you decide that you wanted to make food your career
1: so i um i was always into food uh, my favorite show growing up was yan Can cook so I, was, I was so impressed by Martin Deanne's Nian, knife skills. I would just watch him mesmerize like debone a chicken or just like he, he did this thing where he would like chop scallions and pretend he was all focus, focus. And then he'd look up and smile at the crowd and then just keep chopping. And just, I was I was blown away by that. I'm like, that is so cool. I'd like to one day be able to cut precisely without looking at it. Which I got, yeah, which look I, at you I now. got I got there. look at me now. If but you're
0: listening, him is chopping something while we're talking <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's like it's my my desire to work in restaurants goes beyond just just cooking so I was a I was a sick kid. I had like this chronic disease called ITP, which is like it's this rare autoimmune disease where my body like attacked my own platelets so I couldn't really my blood wouldn't clot. So there was a lot of things that I couldn't do. So I like from age eight to, let's say, 15, I kind of had to like live my life like the bubble boy because I couldn't really do much because everyone was worried that I would like get a bad bruise and like bleed out pretty much because or get like really bad internal bleeding or so. So there was a lot of things that I really wanted to do that I just couldn't. So. One of the things that really attracted me to, to the restaurant dis- industry and specifically fine dining was how difficult it is. So I wanted to prove to myself that, like, yes, I, I can do this. Like, I can do this. I'm, like, strong enough now to do this. I'm mentally tough enough to do this. I'm physically tough enough to do this. So that was, like, the cooking aside, which was something I always liked. I love cooking. I love eating. I love feeding people. I love seeing the – There's there, there are a few things more, like, satisfying than – feeding someone you care about something that they like, and then you, they try it. You see that expression on their face. Like, it, it just, it feels good. It's very satisfying. Um, but that's actually what attracted me to the restaurant industry was like how difficult it was. So when I first started, I knew I wanted to be in fine dining. I knew I wanted those long hours. I, I like volunteered for every clopen, like every close into an open shift. I volunteered for every brunch double. I volunteered for every like, this was back in the day where where you could you you would you could show up to work and not clock in just so you could be at work and see other people prep and just learn things that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. So I would go in as early as I could to watch all the fish butchers break down fish, to watch all the all the even receivers how they would receive the produce and check it to make sure it was up to par. Like I would help them break down their boxes. So I I was I was all in. I, I wanted to learn as much as I could from this industry that I I was really interested in being a part of. I, I was just as interested as being like a part of this restaurant culture as I was to actually becoming a better cook.
0: Yeah, knowing you, I, I feel like that makes so much sense and is also kind of what you need if you're gonna be working in that space because it isn't easy if you, to be doing that kind of work. Even if you're not, you know, like gold star going above and beyond into those things, it is such a demanding industry. And obviously you worked in so many different places. We don't need to linger too long, but I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about some of the places you worked and maybe like meaningful experiences that you had there.
1: Uh, well, my f- I, I, ha- I did my um, externship at WD-50 and that I think was one of like the more formative jobs that I've, I've ever had, period. Because it wasn't so much about what I learned. They really, what like Wiley Dufresne and and his team at the time really pushed forward was the idea of understanding the whys behind cooking and not just the hows. So everything came with an explanation, which I love. So it's like, we cook our pork this way because of this, this, and this. We cook venison this way because if you cook it as slow as you do the pork, it tends to be gamey and get a little mealy. So we actually cook it to this temp. So understanding... The the hows the hows the whys and all those little parts really helped me become a better cook. So it it was it's kind of like experiencing Harold McGee's on food and cooking in real time around me, and um, and just the general culture of of how they put creativity at the forefront. I I never since since I was so Doha's like Qatar in general like it it's conservative and a pretty conformist society. And I like always struggled with that. So I I never really, I I feel like rules are made to be broken. That's just how I, unless you can explain to me why this rule has to exist. Like if I will explode, if I break this rule, I I, I don't really, I I think most rules are just made up by society just because they feel like these, like there's no reason for most of them. And I really liked that they didn't really believe in rules. They're like, it doesn't if this tastes good, if this is an interesting technique that pushes the boundary, like they tried tried to make every dish different. They didn't like to repeat techniques. They didn't like to repeat flavor profiles. Everything needed to be new. So they were constantly pushing for not just correct technique, but new technique, new ideas. And being in that hyper creative environment really kickstarted my brain into thinking about food in a different way.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then where did you go from there? Or maybe where did you go before you decided to pivot into this era of doing more like recipe development, video, like this era that you're in now?
1: So I I worked in fine dining for for a while before uh, Sola and I opened our own restaurant, Hail Mary. Um, Once that closed, I was kind of in— Which
0: timeline, that was like 2017, right? 2017. 2017. Yeah.
1: Um, once that closed, I was kind of in a panic, like, uh, cause you're, you put in everything you have into this project and like financially everything you have. So we, we closed and then I was just, I just felt the panic of like, okay, I need to find a job that I think is secure. So I, I worked, I worked at a Momofuku spot called Ando, a startup, um,
0: which was, this was the
1: delivery-only
0: Momofuku? This de-
1: yeah, this was a delivery-only Momofuku. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of things there. I, th- that was my first foray into kind of casual dining. I'd mostly lived in the fine dining world, and I actually wished I had spent more time in the casual dining world before opening a restaurant because we opened a diner. So if <laughs> opening a diner with a full-on fine dining n- mindset mistake. You opened a diner where like
0: Sola was making the sprinkles herself. So the fine dining was all still there.
1: (laughs) It was all very much still there. Like we were, there was one dish where we made soft soft tofu to order from fresh soy milk that we made ourselves. We grilled our burgers on a, uh, on a Japanese grill fueled by white binshotan, which is the most possible, the most expensive charcoal that you could possibly find on this earth. That's insane.
0: And also people didn't like get that really. No,
1: no, because we were, we were weird. Like we didn't, we felt like, no, it's a little... We we don't want to put that on the menu. It's a little too gauche. So let's just let's just keep it chill. We'll just say burger. They'll oh, get it. No. So it, it was so many mistakes, so many mistakes, and then people would be like, "Why is this burger fifteen dollars? It's just a single patty with American cheese and bread." We made the bread, we made the American cheese with epoise, which is expensive. <laughs> which
0: also, you know, today in 2023, a burger that hasn't been made in that way at all would still be at least $15 on a rent on a menu in New York. So yeah,
1: d- <laughs> definitely easy. Easy.
0: Twenty.
1: S- Twenty. Yeah. So I, I wish I had I wish I'd done that because casual dining is is just as difficult. It's and that ties into a lot of what I'm doing now, which is developing recipes for home cooks. So Worked at Ando for a while that ended up closing. And then after that, like after experiencing two closings back to back in less than a year, I was kind of done with like startup restaurants and 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 like independent restaurants. I wanted to go big. So I ended up working as a as an executive corporate chef for uh, E2 Hospitality for for a few years, which also was a very gratifying experience because you learn a whole other, um, skill set that I didn't have before because I was managing big teams across the city. And that, I think it was that experience and work, working with the people that I did there, I really learned how to become an effective manager and actually, which is just as important part of being a chef as being able to cook well. Like, it doesn't matter if you're a very good cook. If you can't, express to this team of 10, like, way, way, way less experienced cooks than you are, how to how to execute that, then it's it's useless. It's useless. So that kind of I feel like those experiences really came together and and created the person that is here now.
0: Yeah. And that was working for you in terms of it safety mechanism until the pandemic happened. Yeah. <laughs> not to rub salt, kosher salt in the wound, but uh, Diamond Crystal. Diamond Crystal, <laughs> Molden. And then everyone had to, everyone had to close. And yeah. that's when you started doing home cooking. So especially going from, you know, running such a big restaurant group, how did you transition to cooking just at home for yourself and Sola?
1: It was really, it, it was really tough. It was really, really hard because I'd never, I'd never not worked at a restaurant in in new york that that was kind of all all i knew and it was all that i wanted i had i had no idea like all my dreams began and ended with either working at a very successful restaurant owning a very successful restaurant running a very successful restaurant like that was that was just the world i knew that that was the world i i could imagine i really had hadn't pictured myself outside of that world but then the pandemic taught me a few things. One was how much I missed my wife. So we hadn't, working in restaurants, you never really spend much time together just because the hours are really tough. And by that point, Solo had already transitioned into food media. So at least before when we were both in restaurants, we were both working the same hours. We're both coming home at the same time. So we're both kind of living the same life. But when I was still in restaurants and Solo had already kind of transitioned to, to still long hours, but quote unquote, a day job where she was home in the afternoons, it felt, I felt an even bigger disconnect. It was like, we were just coming and going because the times that I were exhausted, I was exhausted was really not the time she was exhausted. We didn't have weekends together. So I I would say that was even, that made it even tougher because when we were in restaurants, we still like kind of advocated to get the same days off, which is something that a lot of restaurants do. If you're, you're in a, if you're, if you're a couple of restaurant people and you talk to your manager, most of them will be like, "Okay, what days off that she does she or he mm-hmm. she, what what time off do, do they have?" And then we can try and finagle some things so you at least have one day off together. That's a very common ask in in the restaurant industry it's It's not that big a deal, but it's it it was tough to to just because there was no overlap because the days she had off were Saturday and Sunday. And I could get a Sunday off once in a while, but there's no way you're getting a Saturday off in in like the restaurant industry. Mm. If you do, you're probably bad at your job and they don't want you around on a Saturday because it's really busy. Um, But that – the pandemic just made me realize we were spending a lot more time together. It's like, wow, this – we were cooking together in a way that we hadn't since, you know, the first time we got together because when we first got together, we would just – we'd cook all the time. We'd – we'd – we spent – probably 6 to 7 weekends in a row just making mole poblano until we felt like we perfected it and we would just make it over and over and over again we're like no we had to toast it a little bit more we got to burn the plantains a little bit more we got to blend the the nuts a little smoother and we we just it just was years of not experiencing that again so pandemic hit we start experiencing that again and it's like oh wow there's like this whole relationship that kind of went Unattended, like it just got kind of got pushed to the side and forgotten, and so the pandemic really helped grow that that relationship, which was, which is something I'm I'm like very grateful for. <laughs> like,
0: yeah, the like six week long Mole poblano, uh, or was it poblano? Yeah, that project. That's like the most romantic thing I've heard for you two. That's so cute, and, yeah. and it's really like you know the mystery menu videos that you do together for the New York Times, like. Your rapport is so evident and, I, you know, I read YouTube comments because I love this series of people talking about how they should show you two in, like, couples therapy to people. And I think what people maybe <laughs> don't know is you ran a restaurant together, like, you had this whole career of, like, what people are seeing is the result of, like, so much practice collaboration between you two that, mm-hmm. like, maybe that isn't communicated, you know?
1: Yeah, it's like we we weren't like this magically. It didn't like, it didn't just matter. We didn't see each other and immediately became these people. That's something that, that is kind of missed when you see just a YouTube video and you don't see all the context or anything around it. Like it took a lot of work to get to work, like active work, a lot of communicating, a lot of like we're we're kind of each other's therapists a lot of the time. So there's a lot of communicating and work and time that goes into getting a relationship to that point where you feel comfortable just talking about anything, no matter how uncomfortable it may seem or, or just working together or kind of reading each other, each other's mind, knowing, knowing where her mind's going to go as it goes there. So you can like anticipate and, and kind of work together better. It's, it, it takes a, a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of work.
0: Yeah. And that comes across. And I think like that's one of the best things about those videos is that you always seem like you're having so much fun when you're cooking together. I'm curious, like if there's a favorite ingredient that you ever did for the mystery menu series.
1: It, the mystery menu series, I think, is one of my favorite things that we do, because it's like it's something we love competition shows like Top Chef. It's fun. Top Chef is one of those things that we kind of we grew up. In the industry, kind of watching it, so mm-hmm. we kind of evolved with Top Chef as it evolved into the show that it is now. So we we would always ask ourselves what we would do in like that scenario, and how, what we what we what would we make with that ingredient? What would we make with that time frame? Like that's just those are just exercises that we do on the couch whenever we're watching a competition show. And so to actually be able to do it is amazing. So I I, w- I think my my favorite ingredient has to be durian, which is what we what we did recently. I think this it's season. this season. Yeah. Because it's it's not an ingredient that we're familiar with at all and it's really exciting to work with something that Maybe you've tasted a couple of times, you you have an idea of what the flavor profile is, but you don't know it well enough to to go in and like bacon, cornflakes, uh, masa, those things are, we use those so much that it's easy to just think of dishes right off the top of our heads and it feels, it's still challenging, but there's like a safety net under it because we kind of know how things are going to come out just because we're mm. really comfortable with those ingredients. But throwing in something like durian, which is a base ingredient that you can do a lot with because it's it's just, it's a fruit. So here's a fruit. What can you make with this fruit? And it has such a complex flavor. So it's like, it's funky. It's sweet. It has like some allium notes in there, which is also, which is weird for a fruit, but it, it's, it was a lot of fun. That That's, I think, I think my favorite episode so far.
0: And it's a sweet episode because durian has this reputation of being, you know, very pungent, like
1: mm-hmm.
0: not good, some people would say. And you two don't have that reaction at all. You're so excited to cook with it and you make such delicious looking things with it. Have you cooked with durian since doing the video?
1: We haven't, but... Only because we haven't really come across it. I'm sure if we if we walk into, like, I'm not sure if they have it at H Mart. I don't think they do. But if we come across it somewhere, I'm sure we'll like pick it up and try some. But it's not something we've we've cooked with since. But it is it is something we're interested in having again. It's I I don't really like it when food is so personal for so many people, and I feel like durian especially. It's like there's so many. It it has like um that like a lot of YouTubers or like social media people like to have like the shock value of trying to maximize how gross it is. They're like, yeah, oh my god, it's durian. We're all gonna die. It's but like it's like world's grossest
0: fruit in like all caps across the video. Yeah, exactly. Which and no it's one like, needs that.
1: No one need. I really don't like food being presented that way. Like there's that like the whole bizarre foods things of like, I'm going to go eat the grossest thing I can find. But it's like, it's it's not gross to a, a very large group of people. So uh, we always like to approach just a new food or just food in general with like a pretty open mind. It's like if, if it's an ingredient or a dish that's, that's close to someone, it's important to treat it with respect.
0: Yeah. And also, like, I got to try some of the jackfruit durian curry that you made for that video, and I was, like, obsessed with it.
1: Oh, really? So, yeah,
0: I want to get the curry paste recipe later because okay. I, I really, like, I have jackfruit right now on my countertop, and I was oh. like, oh, I kind of want to, maybe not, I don't have durian, but I want to do something like that again, you know?
1: Oh, definitely. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah. we we Green curry was one of the the weekend experiments that we did a while back. Like, so you can green curry anything. With, like, the proper technique and the right base ingredients, you can turn anything into a really tasty green curry.
0: (laughs) Another thing I like about these videos is that they get to showcase your graphic tea collection, which is just so good. And I'm wondering, like, if you you. have any holy grail graphic teas.
1: Okay, the graphic teas. I I like, I really like going to shows, but I, even when I I was a kid, so, like, I I was really into music when I was younger because it was, like, like I said, it was a very conformist society. And so like many kids, like my my way to like rebel and break out was was to find interesting music I liked, which was a lot of the times like things that you can really find around there. It was, it was, it's very much a Billboard Top 40 town. Mm hmm. So breaking away from that was my way of like, oh, I'm, I'm different. Like you, like you do when, when you're, when you're, when you're younger. Yeah. You, I'm
0: different and you can tell cause I'm wearing this sick t-shirt.
1: Exactly. Look at my converses. They're untied. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that was kind of, that was kind of the way, or like, uh, I have a t-shirt on, but I'm wearing my dad's blazer on top of it. I'm quirky. Like I mean, that I would wear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah It's a good move. I, I still do that now. Um, so that's like that that's I I I still kinda dress like I'm a child now, I guess. <laughs> um so the graphic tease, I I always wanted to be somebody who went to a lot of shows. Like I I was I'm really I really there's few things as satisfying as being in a very just you feel the energy in a concert where everyone's really into it and really excited to see the performer and know all the words. Like you kind of – the hair stands up on your arm. You get like some goosebumps and you just, you just feel it. And that's – you can't really get that from a lot of things. So that's one of the reasons why I like going to shows so much. And I try to get I, – I don't believe in getting like just band shirts online. I feel like you need to get it from the merch table. That's like that's the, the that's like my rule for so like all the all the band shirts that I wear, they're like from shows that I've I've gone to. Um and I think probably the one that I like the most would be the, or my holy grail tea would be the my Japanese breakfast one, just because that was the first show that I went to after the pandemic. So when I first moved here before just first first moved here i was 20 i started going to shows um in manhattan i I moved to jersey that's that's where my dad was living um and then i stopped because i was in the restaurant industry didn't have time didn't have the means it just wasn't something that could happen so that japanese breakfast show right after the pandemic was probably the first show that i had been to in over 15 years So it was like, it was a big, it was a big deal. I was really excited. I was really looking forward, really looking forward to it. And it, it was totally worth it. And I loved it so much that that kind of kickstarted my, my like desire to go to shows again. So, so that's, I think that since it like marked the beginning of this new show going ham, uh, I would say probably Japanese breakfast tea.
0: I love the ham renaissance of going back (laughs) to shows. Okay, so that was your first one. Is there one that you went to recently that was really fun?
1: Um, So I got tickets to go to Carly Rae Jepsen yesterday at Pier 17, and I don't know if you heard, the show ended up getting canceled like four, four or five songs in because of the thunderstorm, and they rescheduled for now.
0: It's right now. It's right now.
1: <laughs> oh, Pam, If you had told me, we could have rescheduled. Oh no, it's fine. This is this is this is totally fine. Oh, but
0: I love Carly Rae Jepsen. She's amazing. She's I amazing. We could have gone together instead of been, doing this. That would have been great.
1: Um, so I was like, it was one of those shows, like where you you could feel it in the crowd, like what we were talking about, yeah. like that like special energy where everyone's super excited to be there. Everyone knows all the words. Everyone's jumping around, and as she started. She, she did run away with me and then it starts raining at the end. It's like, oh, this feels really special right now. This is going to be awesome. And then thunder hit and then she just stopped. She's like, all right, for everyone's safety, we need to get the hell out of here right now. So that I feel like that would have been up there, but probably the best show I've been to all year, this will be weird, is the Aqua reunion show. It was amazing. It was amazing. And it's I used to listen to Aqua unironically the entire album as I drove around Doha for for a long time. So I know all the words. I know all the songs. It's like, it's just, it's the equivalent of, you know how a lot of people watch like TLC to kind of like, melt their brain, like smooth brain. You just relax. You kind of just just soak it in because it's good times. It's kind of like the same reason why I'm into like wrestling now, because it's like it's like a smooth brain thing. You can just sit down. It's like theater. You don't need to think too much. You just like soak it in. So that's like what Aqua was to me. So being able to relive that was really, really fun. And they put on a good show. And Aqua fans are maybe some of the best fans that I've seen at any concert. They go they go for it. Wow. They dressed up. They sang along. They jumped around. It, it was great.
0: Okay, I'm, like, truly so upset that uh, you're missing Carly Rae for this, but I'm glad that you got Aqua for a similar, like, bubbly smooth brain experience. Because exactly. yeah. that sounds like it was special. Do you think they timed the reunion
1: with the Barbie movie? I for sure they did. There's no way that they didn't. Because I think it was the first time it's the first time that they toured since nineteen ninety eight, which is when Barbie called like that coin I don't buy that coincidence. Tinfoil
0: hat. Yeah they knew. Yeah, yeah they definitely Greta Gruig tipped them off.
1: <laughs> she probably paid for the secretly paid for their tour. Just Whoa. The, um that was and also Caroline Polachek was also a great show. So fun. Yeah, really, really fun. For also like dancey, poppy type type yeah. things.
0: Okay, I mean, we could do a whole music podcast. We could, we could,
1: we could go down that road. <laughs> uh,
0: which I would love. But I want to talk a little bit about your projects and what you're working on right now because there's a lot of cool things, one um, of which being Strange Delight, which is this New Orleans-inspired oyster bar that's going to be opening in Brooklyn. Can you tell me a little bit about your involvement and like how that process has been for you?
1: Stranger Light was kind of like the the dream of a new uh, a friend of mine who actually met at Ando. We we worked together. uh, Yeah, he's a
0: Momofuku guy. Yeah,
1: he's 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 very much a Momofuku guy.
0: He's like employee Uh, number five or something. I
1: think I think so. Yeah, he's been there for a while. And uh, Michael, who's who also works with uh, Moonburger, um, upstate.
0: Yeah, um, like around Hudson.
1: Yeah, around Hudson. Um, and so. So they approached me initially to kind of consult on the menu um, to, you know, develop some NOLA-ish oyster dishes to – for this concept that he'd been dreaming of for for quite some time. And we started working together and then I just got – I really, really fell in love with the project and then they really – they really liked the work I was putting out and then it all – all the stars aligned and then I got brought on as a partner. Uh, So I'm – I've worked with somehow I don't know how this happened but I've worked with oysters a lot in my career it wasn't it, it's not like I well the woke, fine
0: dining guy is like somehow I worked with a lot of oysters <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah oysters and oyster bar so it's like it's it's something I really like mm. it it's there are a few things that that are as delicious completely untouched as they are, like, dressed properly, and oysters are one of those things. Like, if you start with with a really good cold oyster and you just shuck it and have it right there, that is, it's, like, such a pleasurable experience. Like, you get that brine. You get a really nice creamy texture. Like, you really get a taste of the ocean. And I, that's, like, one of the main reasons why I like working with oysters so much is that they're, yes, they're really versatile. You can fry them. You can poach them. You can stew them. You can... You can do a whole array of things with them, but they're still just as amazing, unadorned, freshly shucked, and and eaten. Um, and so, I conveyed like my my love for oysters and all this th- all these things, and then and then it 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 just it just clicked. And so we ended up going going to New Orleans together and eating up both a bunch of new places like uh, Miss River which, and Pesh, which both have incredible spins on classic New Orleans cuisine, uh, local, local ingredients, treated perfectly well. And we also went to the classics like Nods and, and Galatoire's. So good. Um, really good. The Rockefeller at Galatoire's is actually what we based our Rockefeller on. Um, but we, like, obviously tweaked the method and the ingredients. But, but that was, we knew, we knew that that fennel-forward, smooth, spinach kind of vibe thing on top of the oyster was what we wanted. It is so, it, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's just such, such a delicious, delicious oyster. And, um, that, that I think is, is I'm really excited for people to try our spin on that. I, I can't wait. That's, I'm really proud of where we are with that. It's like, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. I'm sure it's, uh, I'm sure it's a, the prep is a little bit more elaborate than what they do over there, but it's, like, the payoff is huge. I'm, I'm really excited for people to get, like, these things that you can't really find here. Like, there are people who do spins on on the mm-hmm. Rockefeller and stuff, but they, like, they go so far that it feels like it's its own thing, and it's really tough when you do an oyster with, like, a topping or or a, to not go overboard because it's so easy to overwhelm the oyster because it's it is such a delicate thing that you need a pretty pretty delicate hand to make sure that you're balancing all the flavors well and that ultimately you finish with a nice clean brine because that that's like that's the goal when you're eating an oyster whether it's cooked or raw you, you want to finish with that brine because that's what keeps you going back for more and and just keeps you eating like keeps you craving more oysters so that's that's probably one of the things i'm i'm most excited for people to try and there's we're doing. A whole bunch of New Orleans-inspired classics. So we're yeah. doing barbecued shrimp. We're doing, um, we're doing our spin on Felix's charbroiled oysters, which is also really exciting. There was there's a certain smoky smell that that you That kind of wafts in the air when you walk into felix 's and you know you 're there we went there we went there twice because we loved it so much, and as soon as you walk in, that like kind of hits you in the face and when we 're testing our version of it, we got that same exact smell as it came off the grill and that 's when we knew like we nailed this this is this is spot on so there's like i 'm just I'm, you're just excited i 'm excited i 'm just excited for people to try what what we 've been working on for. Almost like a couple of years now.
0: Yeah, and there's been some pop-ups. Uh, I went to one. I had the Hush Puppies. I think were the standout for me, just because like it's just so delicious. Oh, um, thank you. But do you have a sense of when it's going to open?
1: Um, not really. We're, yeah. we're we know we know that it's going to be in the Fort Greene area, but we're not quite quite sure where or when. So. Stay tuned. keep your keep your eyes open for for some strange delight news. but yeah, uh, follow because hey, it's happening strange soon.
0: delight on Instagram to find out. another exciting thing you have in the works that I want to talk about is your debut cookbook, which I know you're working on with Clarkson Potter. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: So I'm really excited to like release this thing into the wild because it's it's my exploration of home cooking based on the home cooking I grew up with. So it's not. The main thing, so I want to get past this, like, idea of, like, only traditional food is acceptable. Because, like, what is tradition? Especially in food, it, like, morphs over time. There was a point in time, like, most people, when you think of kimchi these days, it's, like, that red Napa cabbage kimchi. You go far, you go back far enough, kimchi used to be white. So that, like, that's an evolution. And there was a time where... um, there was a time in Mexican cuisine wh- where pozole wasn't a big, like national dish. It, it it that evolved over time. There was a time where, um, sorry to go back to Korean food again. Seoul and I are working on a podcast with a sporkful that kind of dives into the history of specific dishes and how they're made. And we recently did an episode about tteokbokki. So I have like Korean food history on the top of my mind. So there was, there was a time – so initially tteokbokki or Korean rice cakes was made with rice flour. So you pound, you pound rice into these, into these cakes, these like really mochi-esque chewy cakes, and that's how rice cakes were made. And then Japan kind of colonized Korea and then took the rice away. And so then they ended up making tteokbokki with wheat. And once that was over and they regained rice— Tteokbokki went back to being made with rice. So it's like at a different point of time, there was a different thing that was considered traditional because food changes. It morphs based on, on techniques available at the time, equipment available at the time, uh, ingredients available at the time. So that it's like an ever-changing thing. What's like traditional now may not be traditional in 50 years. Or like if you think about it, tomatoes are such a cornerstone of what we consider Italian food today. Tomatoes aren't from Italy. What did they eat before, before, before they got tomatoes?
0: I think that, about that with chili peppers a lot. Also, that you know, chili peppers have spread over the entire world. They're so integral in like uh, East
1: Asian cuisine, mm-hmm. like Thai cuisine,
0: things like that. But they're not native to Thailand.
1: They're not native to Thailand. They're native to South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, potatoes, native to South America. Like that's you think of the Irish, you only think about potatoes. Like that's like what that, were they eating before? What, what the Irish eat before potatoes? Like they're not native there. So it's I really don't like like this idea like it's important to preserve traditions, don't get me wrong, that's not what I'm saying at all, but what I'm saying is like holding this idea that like if it's not a traditional food, it's like garbage and I don't need to learn it or respect it or make it. It's just it's just not true. So I kind of want to want to tackle that and I'm taking these home-cooked dishes that I grew up around and making them my way. So I'm kind of like infusing techniques that I've learned over over the time, ingredients that I'm around, making this like a purely American cookbook. Like this is going to be, it's not like a global ethnic kind of thing. I don't like either one of those words. It's, it's an American cookbook. It's American home cookbook that's going to, That's going to just show you new ways to use spices, ingredients and techniques that you may think that, you know, or have or definitely have access to. But like show them how to how to put them together in a new way and hopefully, you know, spice up, spice up your home cooking a little bit.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited for it even more after this conversation, just because everything you've talked about growing up eating sounds so delicious and knowing all the things that you've learned in different restaurants and just like the way you can combine technique and tradition and flavor. I feel like that's something that a lot of people are looking for, you know?
1: Yeah, I I hope so. I hope so. I hope (laughs) so too. I hope hope so.
0: (laughs) And you mentioned a podcast a little bit that you're working on with Sola. What's the concept behind that?
1: So it's called uh, – we're, we're, it's like a spinoff from The Sporkful, um, which we listen to all the time. Um, and it's – And it's,
0: you're guests on sometimes.
1: And we're guests on sometimes. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, it's called Deep Dish. And it's – we basically pick a dish and then we deep dive. So there, there are interviews. There are recipes. There's a whole bunch of banter. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Hopefully coming out soon. Can you can you mention one of the dishes or is it top secret? Uh well tōpōki is right. one of the dishes that we that we explored. And I think that's uh I think that's I'm going to keep the rest kind of kind of close to my chest, but it's it spans all over the globe where there's no stone left unturned.
0: Right. And and one more collab that you're working on with Sola is your baby which is oh. dropping soon.
1: <laughs> baby dropping soon.
0: Baby dropping soon. <laughs> Early fall. Are you guys going to be those parents that make baby food?
1: Oh, definitely. So we got we <laughs> We got this ridiculous piece of kitchen equipment called a thermomix. So it's it's something that I like used at WD fifty to uh, to make a a temperature stable hollandaise gel. So you could freeze it and deep fry it. Whoa. Without it exploding all over the place, so that's what I, I initially used it for. But essentially, what it is is that a, it's a blender that can cook at the same time. It's really popular in Europe. They kind of use it like their microwave. You can make, you can steam on there. You can make risotto in there. You can make broth in there. You can even fry in there. So we got we got a Thermomix because the thought is we want to go to the farmers market get like some really nice peas when they're in season and all you would need to do is pop them in this blender add some water set the temp and then blend it and then boom you've got perfect warm fresh baby food so we're like very excited to 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 test this out to really see how it works we have like really high expectations for her palate um yeah we're really excited we're we're like we, we've we done a lot of research both online and like asking other parents about how you can avoid like a picky eater because that's like a fear. Yeah. Because it, it, it would, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fear. It would break our hearts if, if like she just wanted, if she was scared of vegetables and just wanted to eat chicken nuggets. But there's really nothing you can, I mean, we'll love her regardless. Right.
0: So. And I mean, you've done the research. I feel like, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that like what the parent is eating during pregnancy is very much affects the baby's palate and i imagine that just all the things that sola is eating like there's no way this kid is not going to come out craving i don't even know why everything you know
1: <laughs> craving durian
0: <laughs> craving durian honestly that's going to be the first thing you're using the thermomix is that mm-hmm. what it's called
1: yeah the okay. thermomix. well i
0: hope the experiments go well and if you need like a human an adult human to try them i'm very <laughs> i'm very curious Uh, You can start me with durian. I won't even care. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And to close out, um, you know, this is taste and we talk a lot about guest taste. So I have a little like rapid fire taste check for you. So I'll throw some categories at you and you can just give me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Um, Ready? Okay. Okay. East Coast oysters or West Coast oysters or Gulf Coast oysters?
1: Ooh, that's tough. Okay. So... I know these are quick. Are these just yes or no answers or can I, I give mean, reason? To, you can tell me why. Yeah. I can tell you why. Okay. So at the beginning of my career, I preferred West Coast oysters because they're smaller. They're less challenging. They have like a cleaner flavor, like less brine and like it, it's just a more subtle flavor. So if you're like new to oysters, I would start with West Coast, but I'm like an experienced oyster eater at this point. So I'm East Coast all the way.
0: East Coast. Okay. Hot Pockets or Pop-Tarts?
1: Ooh, that's, that's tough. So like growing, I, I didn't really eat either of those growing up because uh, they were, they were American imports. So they were very, very expensive. So like here, like a hot, hot pocket, if it's like a dollar, it's easy to, to get. Cause it's like, oh, it's junk food. It's a dollar. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But like, it's tough to justify, like my mom can justify spending like three dollars on something that she didn't consider like real food right so i like had i i had both fairly recently and i have to go with a pop tart i am not a fan of hot pockets at all watch the
0: hot pockets mystery menu episode yes
1: oh yes (laughs) for context Not, not a fan of hot pockets at all pop tarts all the way and brown sugar pop tarts specifically
0: didn't you make like a Pop-Tart crust recently for something on Instagram? Am I making yes. that up? Yeah, Pop-Tart Pandowdy. Pop-Tart Pandowdy. Okay. We're not even
1: rapid fire anymore. We got to no, get, we're we gotta just, get we're back just, in it. We're just talking. Okay.
0: <laughs> go-to bodega snack.
1: Go-to po- bodega snack. I like Fritos.
0: Favorite New York City restaurant?
1: Superiority Burger.
0: Favorite New York City bakery?
1: Ooh, Cabra.
0: Something you'll never make from scratch? Canalets. Most underrated piece of kitchen equipment?
1: Okay. I think people need to throw away their non-sticks. They're useless. They don't give you a good sear and they don't, like, they kind of don't last forever. Cast iron. Cast iron is the way to go.
0: Okay. Go-to diner order.
1: Go-to diner order. I like, so Veselka is my go-to diner. So I like to go with two eggs over easy, latke, um, sausage, and challah toast. Any time of day. Any time of day.
0: It sounds like a great diner order. And this has been a great conversation, Ham. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.